Hi there, my name's James Herman and I'm what's known as a distinctive asset, which is something that makes people think immediately of a certain brand, like the Golden Arches make people think of McDonald's or the Swoosh makes people think of Nike. When the most effective marketing and advertising people hear me, they think of the Master of Advertising Effectiveness brand. The Master of Advertising Effectiveness is a six-week online program in partnership with Walk where I'll give you a next-level understanding of how to make advertising that creates consistently better commercial results. One important ingredient is distinctive assets, like me. And me being here on this ad is one of the many reasons this campaign is the most effective advertising campaign in the world. Confused? You won't be when you become a master of advertising effectiveness. Get started at mae.academy. That's mae.academy. Hello and welcome to the Warp Podcast. My name is David Tiltman and today we are talking about brand and performance marketing. And we'll be looking at some new thinking that's come out of the US on this topic. Now, the concepts of brand and performance are not new for listeners uh, to the Warp Podcast. Many of you will know the work of Les Binet and Peter Field, uh, who've talked about long and short-term marketing for, for a decade now. Uh, and over time, those terms have sort of been refined to brand building and performance. And at the heart of it is the idea that um, marketers have two jobs. They need to build brands over time uh, and strong brands deliver commercial impact over months and years uh, as consumers come into the category. And at the same time, your marketing investment needs to be harvesting as many of the consumers currently in market as possible. So you know, driving, uh, driving revenue in the, in the here and now. And the question has always been how those two things work together. What, what techniques do you need to, to achieve them? And, and how do you sort of create uh, the right blend? A lot of that thinking has come out of, uh, of the UK. So Binet and Field were working with the IPA in the UK uh, or Australia. Um, so whether that's uh, Professor Mark Ritson um, or to some degree, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, though they don't use the term brand and performance but often we've asked well is there anything coming out of the us that that really starts to address this topic and i was really interested to see a new piece of research in the harvard business review uh earlier this year that looked at this topic in a lot of detail and pulled out some new conclusions it's called how brand building and performance marketing can work together and i'm delighted to say that we've got all three authors of that article with us today. We have Jim Stengel, uh, a former global marketing officer of Procter & Gamble, CEO of the Jim Stengel Company, and a board member at Bearer Brand Management. We also have Kate Lamberton, who is professor of marketing at the Wharton School. And we have Ken Favaro, a former CEO of Marikan Associates and the chief strategy officer of Bearer Brand Management. Jim, Kate, Ken, thank you for being with us today. David, good to be here. Thank you for bringing the band back together, and uh, and uh, and thank you to your work uh, colleagues. Uh, my company is a subscriber, and we get lots and lots of inspiration and benefits from work. Great, thank you, Jim. So, listen, um, we've got a lot to get through, but I want to start. I want to sort of test the water a little bit with a, a quote from this year's uh, Cannes Lions Festival. Uh, this was one of the 
my the favorite things I heard said through the week, and it came from Tariq Hassan, Chief Marketing and Customer Experience Officer at McDonald's USA, and, and he said um, he was he was talking about how they've really sort of retooled their marketing uh, department. They've they've really leaned much more heavily into creativity and brand building, but he said. I'm still going to start the quote here. We don't have a conversation about brand versus performance. Everything we do from a brand perspective should perform. And last time I checked, no customer simply wants to be acquired. Really nice quote, but I just want to get a sense before we get into the depth. Agree? Disagree? Do you think he's got a point? Uh, Kate, I'm going to start with you in that one. Yeah, I love that quote. And it reminds me of something that the three of us have talked about before that when I teach a brand at Wharton, I don't talk about brand versus performance. Those aren't even terms that we use. We, we talk about the fact that attribution is more challenging for some kinds of marketing work than others, but we never make this distinction in, in our setting. And so to me, it was, that's part of what's been interesting about this is to realize what a stark distinction people make make this into other in other places. And I think the point with regard to targeting, though, it's a slightly, or acquiring, though it's a slightly different conversation. Um, it pushes us to think back on the metaphors that we use, right? And the way that we have turned marketing into something that is purely a corporate tool, we forget that everything we do could also be providing value to the consumer. And being acquired, as he points out, is not a value. Um, much of our language in marketing is still this post-World War II leftover uh, military language. We, we target people. Um, and I think it might be time to rethink that too. So I think that was a really nice, nice addition uh, to that statement. Ken, anything to build on that? Uh, I guess I would say I agree with most of the quote, but mildly disagree with some of it. Ooh, um, interesting. So if Tariq is saying that bread building you know, should be accountable for its financial contribution. Totally agree. If he's also saying that all forms of marketing um, should be accountable for their contribution uh, to brand equity, couldn't agree more. But I mildly disagree with, quote unquote, no customer wants to be acquired. Um, in my experience, that's a bit like saying no customer wants to be a customer. And I, I don't know of many customers that become customers against their will. Um, and marketing should help consumers want to become customers or want to be uh, acquired. Um, I think what he's really saying is that the words to be acquired are just too company centric. Yeah. Um, and not consumer centric enough. And, and that I, I, you know, I can't disagree with that. Okay. So let's dive into the article the three of you wrote for for the Harvard Business Review. And and I guess the first thing is why. Well, why look at this topic in particular? Um, Jim, I'll I'll start with you for this one. Sure, David. Well, I mean a simple the simple answer is we kept hearing it from um marketers, practitioners. I teach a I teach a class every year at Cannes for emerging CMOs. We had 65 or so in the class this year. We poll them before they come to see what their burning issues are, and we work the burning issues in the class. And for the last two years, this issue has been in the top three. In fact, last year it was the top number one. This year it was right behind AI. So, and so I, we, we hear it all the time in my roving among CMOs, my discussions with them. This is always an issue. 
And so I brought that back to uh, Ken and Kate. And it's an interesting story how we met, if you want to go there as well, David. But this threesome, we love working together. We love working in this piece. But the simple answer is it's a burning issue among CMOs and CEOs, by the way. And they're nervous that they're not, they're eroding their brand based on how they allocate their resources. And no one wants to erode a brand because it's where most of the value of a company is. So that's why we tackled it. So Kate, how did you come to this this debate? So there's a really wonderful survey that comes out of Duke University run by Christine Mormon. Um, and in it, she asks people every year about their marketing allocations. And it's self-reported. And so sometimes what you're picking up is the actual number that's changing. But what you're also picking up on very often are the ideas about what should be happening, like what people think is the right decision right now. And over time, you can watch shifts in these numbers. You can watch things being allocated away from brand. And we know why. Right. I here at Wharton, I have a lot of brilliant students who are very interested in things like finance and finance is going to look at marketing and say, show me the return on the action you just took. And they're going to keep pushing that and pushing that. It's a lot easier when you're looking at things that are considered performance marketing. Um, but then I have to stand up there and teach 500 to 1000 students a year and say, but guys, then there's this whole thing called brand. And for me to bridge those gaps, we had to find, I had to find somebody who was doing work that actually made the connection. Um, and that's how I came into contact with Barra. And that's why I was so excited about working on this piece. So Ken, finish the story. How, you're, you're at Barra. Uh, how did you get involved? I mean, Jim and Kate are absolutely right. It was it, what motivated the article was, was what we were hearing in the market from CEOs who were worried about the impact that performance marketing is having on their brands, and also the diminishing returns that they were starting to see in performance marketing itself. And that's not a coincidence, by the way. Um, but the other thing was we were also hearing from the brand marketers that they felt like they were becoming second-class citizens because they were perceived as less measurable uh, and less immediate uh, than performance marketing. We can get into this later if you'd like, but both of those are tragically wrong. Uh, the problem is brand marketers just don't have the data to, to prove that, that um, <clears throat> their impact is immediate, not just some fuzzy long-term uh, benefit that you can't put your finger on. Ironically, we're also hearing from the performance marketers that their job is getting harder um, and that they feel like they're just running faster and faster to stay in the same place. And what's going on there is that their brand context uh, is deteriorating, which is kind of ironic. Um, and uh, when that happens, your sales start to suffer. And when sales start to suffer, you press the pedal to the metal on performance marketing, which is exactly the wrong thing to do. So that was partly the motivation. The other motivation is that we felt we had a solution to offer the issue to the issue. I mean, HBR wouldn't have published stuff is if all we did was diagnose uh, what the problem is. Uh, and we felt we had a solution to offer. Um, and so that's why we approached the HBR to to write the article. So we'll come back to that solution in a, in a moment. But I guess just in terms of the context, uh, I'd love to know to what extent you were aware of or building on top of some of the literature that that some of our walk listeners and readers will be very familiar with, things like Lesbonette and Peter Field with the IPA in the UK, 
some of the work of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute in Australia. They don't use the term brand versus performance, but there's a lot of their concepts sort of feed into in, into some of those ideas too, or Professor Mark Ritson also. Um, were you aware of this literature? Did you were you consciously building on it, or did you decide to come at the the topic from a slightly different different approach or or uh, a different sort of starting point? I would say yes, and yes, we certainly are aware of Benet Fields' work and Aaron Bird Bass and Sharp. Uh, I would describe at least us as fellow travelers uh, on the road to bringing more evidence-based insights and prescriptions uh, to both brand building and, and marketing. Um, but there are some key differences. Um, I don't know if you want to get into those, but th there are definitely you know, key differences. That... Uh, uh, yeah, I think we should. I think we should because, you know, the walk audience, you know, I like to think they're a pretty smart audience. So they'll know, they'll know the, uh, the existing research. So if, if there's some differences to highlight, then uh, yeah, let's hear them. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a couple examples. So unlike Benet and Field, um, we don't draw a distinction between brand building for the long term and sales activation for the short term. Um, we think they are both about both. <laughs> Brand building and sales activation are about both the short term and the long term. And you can measure that. With respect to Ehrenberg Bass, um, they tend to focus more on quote unquote how brands grow, which is, you know, the title of Sharp's, you know, fairly popular book. But we're more interested in how to grow the contribution of brands to revenue and value. And it took us a while to put our finger on exactly what, why was it that weren't quite resonating uh, with, 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 with what Sharp was saying. And I think that's it, that we separate brand equity from business equity, and then we connect the two. So we're interested in how do you grow brand equity in a way that increases its contribution to business equity or business uh, revenue and, and, and value. So it's more focused on the on the sort of contribution of of brand into business. Yeah, we think of brand equity as a corporate asset, just like your technology, your property, plant, and equipment, your the productivity of your people, and like those assets, they contribute to your revenue and value. So we're interested in how do you grow brand equity in order to grow grow that contribution and. I, we can't quite tell, but Ehrenberg, Bass, and Sharp are a little fuzzy on that distinction. Um, so that's why they talk about, you know, it's all about more customers is all about reaching and so on, so on and so forth in order to increase sales. Um, I don't think they say in order to increase brand equity. Um, and so that, that's a key difference. Another one is if you want another one is that, you know, we have proof that brand equity or brand love in, in our terminology, uh, drives product usage and vice versa that product usage drives brand equity and brand equity drives product usage. They each drive each other. Um, and I don't think that Ehrenberg Bass would agree with that. Um, I think they think the causality goes in only one direction, uh, product usage and to brand equity. Yeah, if I can pick up on something that Ken just said, um, this distinction between product and brand is really important. It's not a fine distinction. Um, very often, I, a lot of the consulting that I've done is in pharma. 
And what was very interesting to me is that they just use the word brand when they mean product. There's not really a differentiation there. And once you start doing that, when you miss that distinction, you're shifting back toward a product focus, the same classic product focus that everybody had until the 60s and 70s when we started to take customer focus. And so it's it's not a fine point. They really are different things. And if you start treating them as though they're the same, you will shift back toward a focus on the product, which can take us to a place where we create a product that we're very, very proud of and is technologically advanced and wonderful, um, but that may or may not resonate with the consumer. So, you know, I think Ken makes that point very well. I think it really matters. And the other thing I'd like to say is there's lots of research out there beyond even those um, sources that that account for the interrelatedness of what's called product, or I'm sorry, performance and brand. Um, but does it very implicitly. So for example, I've been doing research in this area for 20 years, and every time I run a study, I have to think about what brands I'm going to use in that experimental context. If I use a weak brand, whatever intervention I pair it with is not going to work, right? Or maybe there's something interesting to learn there. If I use a strong brand, whatever intervention I'm studying is going to change its effect. We do this in every single paper that we write. We make these decisions. And I don't think we ever realized that the fact that we do this over and over and over again is information. Um, And so I think, you know, to Ken's point, this doesn't come out of nowhere. But at least in my world, it hadn't been explicitly discussed as a contribution that needed to be isolated on its own. Um, One of the arguments in the paper, which I think is really interesting, is uh, that we need to move away the idea of balancing brand and performance. And this is a, you know, this is a common uh, sort of assumption that the two things have to sort of operate in balance, whether that's 60-40 or or some other sort of relationship. Um, Can you just explain why you think that terminology or that sort of idea of balance is 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 something we should we should avoid it's i think that concept lacks imagination and it also it assumes it's a zero-sum game and we're trading uh resources between performance and brand and i hate all of that and we hate all of that you know it might be that you're massively under investing under investing in a brand Uh, it may be that you're over investing in a brand so I, I, we prefer an expansive look. Uh, you know, some companies call it zero-based budgeting. AB InBev has been famous for that. But the idea is, let's take the data. Let's, let's, let's by the way, work on our metrics, which we'll talk about in a bit. But we, we just don't like the term balance. It, um, it is limiting your growth. And it's limiting your thinking. And that's why, uh, that's why we're very, very negative on that word. Ken and Kate are shaking their head violently, I think. Yep. I, and, you know, balance, I think, is a default um, when you don't really know what the solution is. You, you, you revert to, well, we need to put them in balance. You know, who can disagree with that? Uh, balance feels like a, a good thing. Uh, but if you really think about what balancing means, you know, the idea of balancing is to take less of something in exchange for more of something in order to bring them into equilibrium. Think teeter-totter. The problem is that brand marketing and performance marketing are just different means to achieve two good things, more revenue and more long-term value. So why wouldn't you want as much as each as you can get? Why would you ever accept less of either if it's producing more revenue uh, and value? 
So we prefer that that one's mindset be not to balance, but as Jim just said, is to optimize uh, your allocation of resources to brand marketing and to performance marketing and let the balance be the result of that rather than the input uh, to that. But David, I would also say it's a deep thing here because in, in the reaction to our article, since we published it, we've gotten a lot of companies and people who've reached out to us and say, can you help us with our balance of spending and what's the right balance? And you know that whole premise we don't agree with. We'll help you optimize your spending. We'll help you grow more value in your company by optimizing your resources. But we don't start with a, here's, here's your finite set of resources. Here's the right balance. That's not, that's not the right question. Yeah, if I can add, I think one other thing about that is that balance implies that it's stable. And once you've got it, you've got it. 50-50 is 50-50. It's not going to change. And that doesn't really make sense in the lifespan of a brand. So it's, it's the wrong, again, it's the wrong metaphor. <laughs> we have to interrogate yeah. the metaphors that we use because <laughs> it doesn't help us. You know, and I think that one of the conversations I keep having, this isn't about how much. This is about what you're spending it on. I mean, you can have a $500 million budget and do idiotic things with it. Or you can have a $5 million budget and do exactly the right thing with it. And that, to the point of metrics, is if you have the right metric, it gives you managerial guidance in how to spend whatever budget you have. Um, so I think you know that the allocation also people think if I've got the right number, I'm going to be get I'm going to get the right answer, and that just doesn't doesn't hold together. Um, so I think it's fascinating, and and one of the reasons is it comes back to language again, and the 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 actual language and the the metaphors we use, and how sometimes they can have unintended consequences. You know, we we come up with a word, and then we only realise later on that 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 word has had unintended consequences. I want to go into the research a little bit, um, and obviously I would advise anyone listening to this to to go and read the article because there's lots of good stuff in it we don't have time to cover all of it on this uh podcast but there's a particular area i want to delve into and that's because when we speak to we speak to marketers who are looking at this area the big issue that they always have is well i know brand is important but i'm struggling with the way we measure it, that actually then ladders up into a sort of commercial measure that can compare with with what I'm getting from, you know, search or or very targeted social or whatever it might be. Um, now, you propose something that helps here called the FRMU model, uh, FRMU standing for familiarity, regard, meaning and uniqueness. So talk us through it. Because uh, this, this for me was the, the absolute core of the paper. So, so I really want to sort of spend some time on it. So, who wants to kick off here? Yeah, David, I, you're absolutely right that it's the core of the paper. Because uh, as Kate has, has has said a few times now, if you if you can't measure brand equity <laughs> uh, such that um, a you can link it to its financial contribution, and b you can link link it to what drives uh, brand equity. Then it's going to be very hard to solve the brand building versus performance marketing conundrum. Um, so, why do we choose uh, FRMU? We started with a different question than I think most implicitly, if not explicitly, start with. We start with the question. We started with the question of what measures of brand equity make it the best predictor of its financial contribution. 
we didn't start with the question of how should you define brand equity and therefore measure it, um, which has led to a proliferation of brand metrics and a proliferation of he said, she said, bun fights over how you define brand equity. Uh, in some respects, it doesn't matter how you define it. What matters is how you measure it such that you can connect it uh, to business outcomes. And that's how we landed on familiarity, regard, meaning, and uniqueness for two reasons. One is it's the best predictor of brand equity's contribution to business. But another important point about it is that it very accurately reflects the relationship that consumers have with a brand. Um, from, you know, we call it our, our metaphor, if I can use one, is, is from, you know, new and dating to love to boredom. So there are lots of brands that have really high scores on familiarity and regard, but they've lost their meaning and uniqueness. Think all the consumer insurance brands, think General Motors, think Bud Light. Uh, consumers, even in their target audience, are kind of bored with them. That's what we mean by boredom. There are other brands that don't have as high familiar regard, but for the people that know them, tremendous meaning and uniqueness. They're on their way to brand love. They're in the dating stage, so to speak. So it's a very good way of capturing and measuring the emotional relationship that consumers um, have with, with brand. And that's why it drives business outcomes. That's also why we... we roll up FRMU to a composite metric, a single metric of brand equity that we call brand love. It's the brand love score because it, re it reflects that emotional relationship that consumers have uh, with the brand. Hey, David, I'd like Kate to build on that, but I just want to interject. We're in, we're in the post-Barbie movie season, right? We're recording this a few months after the movie came out, uh, which, by the way, is materially impacting Mattel's stock price. Think about what that movie did to the RMU of the Barbie brand. It blew it out of the water and moved Barbie from boredom to intense love, cultural relevance. So it's a beautiful little case study of what can happen when you allocate your resources in the right way and you understand what drives the financial value of your brand. Kate, over to you. What I really like about this metric, and there may be others that do it, but is that it captures how well the the brand has actually carried out that positioning step that we talk about as the fulcrum of your go-to-market strategy. Um, because it's not, what you've defined here is your frame of reference. That is, do, are people familiar with you as a category member, which you need to do, but it hasn't lost that distinctiveness. And I think what I see is a lot of brand work and performance work uh, that no longer drives toward differentiation, which is the core of marketing, right? Mar marketing, it's about heterogeneity in customers and heterogeneity in firms and how we match those things up. And what this does is it brings in both the piece of the positioning that sets the table and the piece of the position that says how we're different once we're on that table. And I think, I think many companies have completely forgotten that they need to do that second piece, which is really kind of strange, but especially if you go through and you read all the mission statements and the vision statements and the purpose statements, they all sound a lot alike. Um, so if you just rely on that kind of thing, you get stuck. But this metric picks up both pieces. And that, that's part of the reason I really like it. Uh, and so sat underneath, sat underneath this FRMU, are there other things that, that sort of contribute to that? Or is each of those a sort of just a 
uh, a measure in its own right? Is it a simple question in a brand tracking survey? How would how would you operationalize it? I guess. No, we so we that's uh, a good question, David. We did address that in the HBR article, um, not extensively, but we did say or did you know write about the notion that you can't just measure FRMU. Uh, and you can't just measure its contribution to business outcomes, as important as, as that is. But you also have to be able to measure what drives FRMU. Um, and the framework that lies behind the article that Jim and Kate and I wrote was that positioning and the activation of that positioning through your product, your promotion, your people, place, um, uh, and you know, so on and so forth, every touch point that a company has with its, uh, a brand has, that consumers have with a brand, it's the positioning and the activation of that position that drives FRMU. So if you want to be rigorous about your brand positioning and how you activate that position, you need to be able to measure it. So you must have metrics for both positioning and for activation, and those metrics must be predictably connected to FRMU. Now you have an end-to-end chain of cause and effect between brand strategy, brand equity, and its impact on financial contribution. You, you talk about this becoming a composite metric. Um, yeah. So you, you have scores against each that, that you, you combine into, into a single, what I guess we'd call a brand equity score. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You roll it up uh, and you can break it down. So you roll it up. How does how does is my brand equity as a corporate asset has that improved or diminished? Um, and then you could say, well, if it's improved, why? What was it? Was it F or R or M or U? Mm. <laughs> uh, and if it was M and U, why? Was it because we're particularly strong on positioning, or is it because that we introduced a new product, or is it because we introduced a new availability? Is that why? Uh, so that you could begin to really diagnose what's going on with respect to your efforts to grow your brand. And how applicable is this across categories? Uh, I mean, Kate, you, you just mentioned that, that uh, some of the research you do across all these different, whether it's pharma or FMCG or CPG, as uh, you call it in the States. Does this work for all of them? I'd like to hear Jim on this too, because he's he talks with CMOs all the time, right? Who, who use different kinds of metrics. Um, from the data I've seen, there isn't a, a big difference in the way these things work. I do think that probably in some industries, there are pieces that are going to, to Ken's point, ha- make a stronger contribution to the value of the, of the company as a whole. So for example, when I'm working in pharma, you, you know, being unique is, is, it's important in a sense, but it's it's not nearly as important as feeling trusted, right, and feeling safe, right. If I'm if I'm working in in uh, luxury fashion, it's a very different discussion, right. So I think I think that there are different contributions to that metric that go from the bottom to the top of the system, but that if, as long as you have the analytics in place to allow for those different weightings, yeah fundamentally it's a good metric so it's about the weighting the weightings mm-hmm. you apply when you build the composite yeah. metric well, they the, made it yeah, the, yeah and they, well they'll emerge they'll emerge from your analysis because you'll be able to see what's con- which of those pieces is most meaningfully contributing um to the sure. kpi that you're focusing on as your outcome and the short answer to your question kate i haven't met a category or a leader where this framework is not relevant and applicable 
whether it's B2B, B2C, large companies, young companies, mature companies, uh, it's this thinking and this framework and this, these metaphors we've been talking about, the positive metaphors, are applicable to every category that I've worked with since I've left P&G. And, and by the way, it's uh, at the Cannes Festival this year, which is a nice barometer for what kind of categories and brands are interested in, in creativity and building their brands. B2B is showing up in a big way. And I think that's a really positive step. And David, if I might, if, if it's okay, I might bring a bit of neuroscience into this. Please <laughs> answer do. You. We love a bit of neuroscience. <laughs> Not that I'm a neuroscientist or know much about it, but, um, uh, you know, there's work. Uh, increasing amount of work uh, that kind of proves the notion that we human beings can't really make decisions unless we have emotion. That emotion drives 90%, if not more, of, cons- uh, of consumer decision-making. Uh, like the work by ba- Baba Shiv at Stanford uh, Business School. Uh, there's work at Harvard, probably work at Wharton too, uh, that kind of confirms the notion that as rational we want to be and think we are making our decisions at the end of the day, it's emotions that drive uh, decisions and behavior. And that's true for all people, whether they are in a B2B business or whether they're potential customers of a B2C uh, type business. And why FRMU works across all kinds of brands, all kinds of categories, B2B and B2C is because it measures that emotional relationship uh, that people have with brands. I mean, think McKinsey. That's a B2B brand, right? Um, You know, in my past, I ran across them all the time, worked with executives. There were many executives who just loved McKinsey, the McKinsey brand, and there are others who felt the opposite way. Um, And those emotions drove their decision-making about whether and how to use what consulting firms. And of course, you see it in B2C. You know, there are people who love Bud Light and there are people who now no longer feel so much love uh, for Bud Light. And that is driving their decisions and behavior with respect to that brand. And FRMU captures that, uh, which is why it captures the contribution of brand equity to business outcomes so um, accurately and predictably. So in the paper, you talk about some actual studies you ran with with specific brands in different uh, in in different markets. There was, a, there was an airline in there, and I think it was a wine brand or something. So interesting examples where you'd apply this approach, this FRMU approach, and you looked at how different differences in uh, brand that sort of composite brand equity metric had then translated into movement in uh, in shareholder value and, and and revenues. So tell me. What did you learn from that exercise? Is, it, is, is brand, does this allow brands to become more measurable in terms that are actually going to mean something to the CFO? Yes. Yeah, so those three examples in the article came from the work that Jim, Kate, and I have done with companies to prove to them that growing their brand equity, if you measure in the right way, um, has a measurable, predictable impact on both their revenue and their shareholder value, um, and that the impact is specific to their brand. That's because there are brand effects and category effects that vary across brands, 
uh, and therefore the impact that brand equity has on revenue and shareholder value, the degree to which it has that impact will vary. So <clears throat> lots of learnings from all of that, but I would boil it down to one, uh, t- maybe two things. Uh, one is they all found that the, the value ROI, uh, that's the term we use in the article, which by which we mean the shareholder value return on investing in good brand building is always higher, always greater than its revenue ROI, meaning the the revenue return you get uh, on investment in brand building. And the reason for that is because brands with higher equity have lower price sensitivity and and lower price elasticity. They also have greater revenue stability and they have higher growth potential. So 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 sort of the stock market is picking up on this 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 sort Correct. of it, it's not just the revenues that you're driving it's the it's the the overall health of the business in terms of the prices yeah. you can charge the uh the, the lack of volatility in in revenue revenue movement so it's quite interesting it's, isn't it that's that's, yeah, that's a fascinating like finding the market is picking up on the idea that your brand equity today is an indicator of your future growth profitability and stability um, and that's why they're willing to put a higher value uh, on your brand and your company today, because your brand equity s- suggests that your future looks pretty bright. We call that a multiplier effect on brand building. Um, and if, if, if you take that on, you begin to realize that the way the return on performance marketing is measured completely understates the true return if performance marketing is done in a way that supports brand equity. And it completely overstates it if it's done in a way that works against your brand equity. Uh, Because performance marketing is really measuring at best revenue ROI rather than value ROI. And that really opened the eyes of these customers we were working with and kind of led to the insights that we share in the HBR article. Kate, Jim, anything to add to that? The only thing I would say it's anecdotal, David, but we're you know we're coming through an inflationary period in, in the world economy. Uh, look at two of the most admired brand building companies in the world, LVMH and Procter and Gamble. Look at how they fared throughout this inflation, throughout these difficult economic times. Their uh, their the value of those enterprises has increased, and their brands have stayed healthy through all of these crazy times. I think it's just it's anecdotal, but I think it's a good example of what what Ken has just walked us through. Yeah, it's it's sort of become a cliche now, a, a, a company managing to push in, a big company managed to push it through an 8% price increase with no actual drop in volume. It's, yep. it, it's quite something. Um, okay, I, I'm conscious of time, but there's a few things I just want to sort of conclude with because we've we focused a lot on the brand side here, uh, but there's obviously the performance marketing side as well. And I think one of the interesting things you, you point uh, out in your article is that performance marketing could be more responsible for brand or more accountable for brand. So just talk me through that. Uh, what, what does that actually mean in, in practice uh, for a company that's got a performance marketing team? What do they need to be telling them? I'll, I'll jump in here and you can almost imagine this from the consumer side. People who get constant text me- messages bothering about them bothering them about promotions and deals and every other amazing thing the company is trying to do, they stop liking the company. 
You know, if my inbox is full of, of emails that are being sent out by the performance marketing team, I stop wanting to see that brand in my inbox, right? And to use Ken's metaphor, they wear me out. I'm done. You know, I want to hang up the phone and go home. Um, and so I think that uh, we have to really think about the way that consumers experience multiple performance marketing tactics. Um, they don't they don't see these as separate things. Like the, the company may say we have four different campaigns going on or we have three different groups within our performance marketing side that do very, very different things from each other. And these are all distinct and these are all important. We've got the mobile and the, and the social and we've got the, you know, a thousand different things. In the company, they're different. The consumer experiences them all at once and it can be completely exhausting. So I think that we have to first think about volume. And think about how much a consumer actually wants to be exposed. You know, more exposure is not always what a consumer wants. And then beyond that, there's good performance marketing and there's bad performance marketing. Um, some performance marketing can be very enjoyable and in that sense, build the brand. It can also be very brand consistent. If I get something at home that's a performance marketing piece, but it's beautiful and it's sensitively put together and it's delivered at the right time in the right way, that absolutely builds the brand. Um, and so... No, I think I think there's there needs to be some communication between performance and brand. When performance says, here's the piece that we're thinking of sending, here's the set, the portfolio of stuff we're thinking of doing, how does that align with our brand definition and our brand personality? Um, and those conversations I don't think happen very often. I mean, at best, maybe you have some, you know, some overall person who's checking whether the fonts are right, um, or no, or legal gets a look at everything. But beyond that, you're talking about creating the voice of the brand. And if the brand people aren't, aren't involved in curating the words that are used, you're going to have a mismatch. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's three things. It's, it's common metrics, common culture, and an integrated org design. And those sound like really simple concepts. They are not present in a lot of brands and companies right now. And the companies that do that well, I would think companies like Intuit, uh, St. Jude's, with by many measures the most loved brand in America, they think of everything as stories. They're highly integrated. Everybody in that company is, is measured on their brand. Whatever they do, whether they cook the food, clean the floors, or do organ transplants, they are measured on the brand. And that's the right thinking. And David, imagine this. Imagine that you went to the performance marketing teams in a handful of, of companies. And you ask the performance marketing team, what is your company's brand growth strategy? And how are your efforts supporting that strategy? I'm pretty sure that you would get a lot of blank stares. And uh, so I think another aspect of this is you, you make them more responsible for brand by making them internalize the company's brand growth strategy and show that their campaigns um, are supporting that brand growth strategy rather than working against it. So let's let's conclude. What, what do you want to happen next? So basically in terms of new research into this space or it, where do you want to take this next? And, and, and what do you want marketers to actually do with it? So Kate, kick us off with this. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about 
all the cool research that can come out of this. And so one thing that we really do need to to think through for different brands is how we can show them um, the connection between performance and brand, Um, whether it's in sort of abstracted experimental settings or whether we do it using some kind of in-the-field metrics. We know that that's an argument that's going to have to be made in a very compelling way for firms to change the tactics and that or rather the strategies that they've been playing out in these tactics for a long time. So we need to talk about that. And if there are firms that want to work on that, I think we're all excited about being engaged with that. I would say more broadly, what this does, it's good news for marketing. It's really good news because what we're realizing is that marketing itself is providing value. If marketing itself is providing value to the consumer, it is, in a sense, its own product. What we are doing is creating a holistic marketing experience, a marketing ecosystem um, in which we immerse the consumer. And so if we begin to think of everything we do in marketing as part of, for example, a house that we're furnishing for the consumer to live in that has a unified design and has a unified structure and has a certain set of purposes, um, then we actually curate our, our marketing system as though it is its own particular product that we provide to the consumer. And I think that's really good news for marketing. Um, at this, it, you know, it used to be that marketing was just a, you know, a ad in a magazine. Now it is a whole immersive experience. Um, and so it, in a sense, it's like we move from the funnel to the journey. And I think now we're moving to the ecosystem. And I think this kind of thinking helps us bring that to life in an analytical way. Wow. I love that funnel to journey to ecosystem. That should be the headline here, David. <laughs> uh, Ken, any anything you want to see happen next, uh, either in terms of the res- follow-up research or, or or how you sort of socialize this in in the industry? Well, uh, you asked, you know, what would we want marketers uh, to do with this? Um, I don't know that I could add much to. I agree with Kate that that more research is needed, and I think she put her finger on what kind of research is needed. But you also asked, what would you want marketers to do with the work that we've done so far? And I would suggest two things. Um, Almost beg them. (laughs) Um, One is treat this as a corporate issue um, that's owned by the CEO with the CMO as her deputy. Um, Brand equity is a corporate asset. We've talked about that. The CMO is a corporate role. It's not just a functional role. Um, this tension between brand marketing and performance marketing, um, getting them to work together as partners rather than as competitors for the budget, uh, is a corporate issue um, that needs to be owned by the, the CEO and delegated to the CMO. So don't let it fester down in the bowels of the marketing function. That's number one. Uh, and number two is um, you have to upgrade your band, brand metrics and your KPIs. Um, If you can't connect brand equity to the relationship consumers have with your brand, you can't connect it to the impact it has on revenue and value, and you can't connect it to the way you're positioning, the way you're activating that positioning, the problem is intractable. Um, And you're going to have to be willing to let go of some metrics, uh, even ones that you love, um, if they just aren't validated predictors of the trajectory of your brand and its contribution to brand. And I know that's easier said than done. We all fall in love with metrics. We all use metrics in part because we've used them for years. So it's easier said than done. But 
it's one of the main reasons that this issue keeps coming up over and over again. Great. And just to like, finish off then, we, we started with that McDonald's quote where Tariq was saying, we don't think of it as brand versus performance. Do we do we feel and I think we've touched on this, but I just want to get a sort of final comment from uh from a couple of you. Is there a better way to think of this this question? You know, we're coming at it like these are opposed things, almost two completely different sort of schools of thought, uh, that require that seem to operate almost with intention and balance and need to be balanced. What's a better way of thinking about it? Is it Kate's house or or is there another another sort of uh thought that that you have? Jim, why don't you when yeah. he finishes off. I mean, I love Kate's thought about, we used to think about funnel, then we think about, thought about journey, now we think about ecosystem. I like that. But I do, I do want to emphasize the great brand building companies of the world have extremely customer or consumer-centric cultures. And they start with the customer and the consumer and work backwards and think about what they can do that's right in their category and with their history and with their capabilities to make the consumer's life better and to grow their company based on that. That we can never, ever, ever take that away from front and center. That's the main, that's the main thing. The main thing is the main thing, as LeBron James says, and that I couldn't emphasize that more. And this article was all about helping, giving a framework and a way of thinking to help more leaders and more companies do that. You know, what's the most admired company in the world these days? I mean, you, you could argue that, but Amazon's always in the top three or five. Amazon is famous for building a system which starts with the customer and works backwards. We all need to never, never, ever get complacent about that. Great. Ken, anything to add? Well, first of all, I totally agree with the implication in your question, whether you meant it or not, <laughs> or perhaps the implication I took away with it from it, which is, we do need a better way to think about these, these two concepts. And I think that starts with making a distinction between means and objectives. Brand marketing and performance marketing are different means to, say, to achieve the same two objectives, uh, which is to grow revenue and to grow value. Um, and, and if you think of them as having different objectives like Brand marketing has long-term brand building as its objective, and performance marketing has short-term sales activation as, as its objective. You're going to turn what should be a productive partnership uh, between them into an intractable tension that cannot be solved, no matter how much, quote-unquote, balancing that you do. And in that, in that scenario, performance always wins. Right. Uh, 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 yeah, not performance in the sense of performance. Oh, oh, yes, in that. In, yes, in terms of correct. the in terms of yes, budget. Exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because it's perceived as more immediate and more measurable, <laughs> which brings us back to being able to measure the impact that these two have on their shared objectives. I think that's a great place to leave it. So, Ken, Jim, Kate, thank you so much uh, for, for, for being with us today. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Great. Thanks for having me. David, thank you for orchestrating a great discussion. And it was great to get together with my two co-authors again. We miss each other. Yeah, <laughs> I enjoyed being with you and the excuse to be with Jim and Kate. And I thought your questions were fantastic. Uh, so thank you for that. 
So that concludes today's episode of The Walk Podcast. Uh, If you want to know more about the article we've just mentioned, it is called How Brand Building and Performance Marketing Can Work Together. It's available on the Harvard Business Review. And if you're interested in this whole brand and performance uh, topic, then, well, needless to say, we have plenty on Walk to sate your appetite. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do follow The Walk Podcast on your podcasting platform of choice. And if you really liked what you heard, please do leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.